This is episode number 625 with Kim Grauer, Director of Research at Chainalysis. Today's episode is brought to you by Datalore, the collaborative data science platform. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've got the profoundly insightful Kim Grauer on the show today. Kim is Director of Research at Chainalysis, the world's leading crypto analytics firm, whose analysis is regularly featured in major mainstream news outlets. Previously, Kim worked in an economic research and analysis group for New York City. She holds a master's in political theory from Oxford and a master of public administration from the London School of Economics. And she completed the General Assembly Data Science Bootcamp. Today's episode will appeal primarily to folks who are interested in blockchains and cryptocurrencies, particularly those keen to perform data analysis on blockchain data. In this episode, Kim details the unique real-time economic data analytics opportunities that blockchains provide. She also talks about examples of her own research on blockchain data, such as analyses of illegal activity and global crypto adoption. She fills us in on the tools and approaches she uses daily to analyze and report on blockchain data. She talks about where the evolutions of crypto, blockchains, and data science are going together, and why a data science bootcamp could be exactly the right thing for you if you're looking to break into the field of data science. All right, you ready for this illuminating episode? Let's go. Kim, it's awesome to have you here on the Super Data Science Podcast. I've been waiting for this opportunity for weeks, and now you're here. Uh, where in the world are you calling in from? Thanks for having me. I'm calling in from New York, New York. <laughs> yeah, we missed an opportunity to film in person. Sometimes when I have New York guests, uh, they come right to my apartment and we film there. And uh, we'll, we'll have, just have to do that some other time. It, the reason why we got into this scenario administratively it was an administrative oversight because our original intention was to have you and your colleague, Philip Gradwell, together in episode number 621. But you couldn't make it that day. And so we split up the episode. And actually, that ended up working really well. So we couldn't have done it with you and Philip in person because Philip is in France. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, we just set this up as a, as a remote recording. And it ended up being fortuitous that we split up you and Philip because it turns out you both have an absolutely enormous amount to share about how data science is applied to blockchains and to cryptocurrency. And so uh, our, everyone benefits from this new situation, except that we didn't get to meet in person. <laughs> yeah, I secretly created that situation because I wanted my own episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, diabolical, Machiavellian. I love it. Um, so I originally heard about you through Sadie St. Lawrence, who was in episode 517 of the Super Data Science podcast. And then she is my only ever, so far at least, repeat guest. So she came back in episode number 537 to do uh, data science trends predictions for 2022. So it was the first episode of this year. 
and she was predicting trends. And she had a whole section on cryptocurrency and blockchains. And I can't remember if I said this to her on air or after the episode, but I was like, is that stuff really important to data science? Do I really need to know this? And she was effusive about how important it is and the great opportunities for data analysis that there are for data scientists to be working with blockchain data, cryptocurrency data, uh, because there are these big public records. And then she highly recommended you, Kim Grauer, to be on the Super Data Science Podcast to uh, to be our kind of our luminary to describe that. And then I noticed that you were a colleague of Philip, whom I have already known for 15 years. And so, yeah, <laughs> again, wanted to get you in the same episode, but then ended up in this better situation with you in separate episodes. All right. So for a couple of years, you were a senior economist at Chainalysis, and now you're a director of research. And you've been doing that for a couple of years as well. So what does this director of research role entail at Chainalysis? And how is it different or related to what you were doing as a senior economist? So the director of research role right now oversees all of our public-facing research that we put out into the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At Chainalysis, for, I've been at this company for five years, over five years. So I've been, I've been probably deposited on 10 different teams, but always doing the same thing, which is research of what's happening on the blockchain. And I've never really been tied to products or things that we sell. It's more about what what can we what insights can we glean about cryptocurrency because oh my gosh there's so many misconceptions around cryptocurrency the only way to combat that is just with boring neutral data it turns out a lot of the data data is not boring <laughs> crime data is not boring but mm-hmm. early on our founders i remember sitting down on my first interview and it was it was pre series funding we were at a we were at a co-working space and they didn't have a marketing team. They didn't really have product teams yet. And But they knew that it was important for them to prioritize research. So they hired me on as an economist. And they uh, since then, I've just been doing various forms of research. It proved to be more important than I think Maybe they knew it, and I and I didn't quite appreciate how important it was going to be for our company and also for the industry because we now do things with that data, like testify in front of con- testify in front of the Senate banking committees and wow. and really important stuff for the industry. But so that that those small, you know, as a senior economist, I was doing small blogs, small research questions around interesting, nerdy, quirky things that the that the blockchain blockchains have to tell us. But now uh, it's become a, a an arm that I lead under within Chainalysis, mm-hmm. a team of you know, really smart people focusing on different things tackling the world, tackling the most interesting questions in the industry that we think that people need to know about, coordinating with different companies and partnerships and data feeds and just trying to get the best possible answer to some of the most interesting questions that the industry needs to be able to answer if it's going to grow and become more widely adopted. Yeah, so it sounds like you specifically played an enormous role in bringing Chainalysis to uh, to the world. So I see Chainalysis frequently in mainstream media publications, 
I read The Economist all the time. You guys are mentioned in there regularly. In terms of providing data to the public based on research, Chainalysis is head and shoulders above any organization uh, with respect to analyzing blockchain or cryptocurrency data. There's no question. So it sounds like the work you've been doing at Chainalysis from that initial conversation prior to any series funding has, it's, it's, it sounds like you're making an enormous impact, not only in the company, not it sounds like, let me rephrase that. <laughs> you are making an enormous impact, not only in the company, but also to the world. And uh, some of that is financial information, like you're saying, um, might not be the spiciest out there, but some of this is also related to crime. And so you're also making a big positive difference with the research that you're bringing out. And yeah, it's interesting to hear that places like the U.S. Senate Banking Committee are taking notice and, and valuing what you're doing. It's super cool. Yeah, thanks for thanks for saying that's that's really cool to hear. And to I do feel like I have and my team and we at Chainalysis have impact and have and I think that's one thing that's really interesting about this space is that there's it's new. There's a lot of opportunities to to be a part of the conversation in more so in cryptocurrency than in other domains because there's not a rule book really. So we've had a, an extreme, it's, it, it's something that is one of those things where a lot of things came together in the right way to allow for this to happen. And, and we've really been nimble and, and been adaptive and not kind of confined ourselves into research boxes and tried to respond as best we can to what we think the industry needs needs. And, you know, there are some, uh, some things I think about now is what next, but obviously that's a, that's a bigger question. Nice. And we will get to some what next later. What next? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, before we get there, there's a topic that we discussed prior to recording that I would love to rehash for our audience because it really uh, interested me and it seemed to even kind of surprise you as a question. So let me frame this for the audience. Um, when people talk about blockchain technologies, <laughs> it is often referred to as the blockchain. And you've actually, you've used both in this interview now. So you talked about the blockchain, and then later you mentioned blockchains. And so I asked you as an expert in this field, you know, what is correct? What is the right way to do it? I hear people talking about the blockchain, but it seems confusing to me because there's lots of blockchains out there. There's the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain. So it seems like there are blockchains and yet they are referred to as the blockchain. So I'd love for you to elucidate that for our listeners. Well, I had never thought about it. <laughs> Probably a bad a, a bad thing to admit on this podcast, well, but I had a, never <laughs> It's like a fish it. not noticing the water that they're swimming in. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were saying now I'm going to notice it everywhere. I think that <laughs> um, I th- my answer, and there might very well be a correct answer out there but uh my my take was that that it's kind of a relic of the times before there were all these multi-chains so we live in a time now where we talk about Solana, Ethereum, all of these other blockchains are equally important. In fact, Bitcoin is I think t- less than 10% of total transaction volume that we see. So it's it's you know, it's whereas uh, doesn't ob- the obvious next thing I'm going to say is it used to be 100%. There used to right. be one blockchain, the blockchain. Right. So that could be it, but there could also be 
there could also be other reasons as I think to, it's yeah. a, an elegant explanation and it makes perfect sense to me. So some listener out there, if you want to correct us, you can find me on LinkedIn and message me about that. But I think that this is a great explanation for why the blockchains are often referred to as the blockchain. Um, the historical um, uh, context makes perfect sense. All right. So you've been for more than five years now analyzing <laughs> the blockchains. And so Sadie and Philip were also talking about this huge opportunity for people who are interested in doing data analysis like data scientists are because it's this huge public record of transactions. And so there's an enormous amount to be mined. And so clearly that's the kind of thing that must have drawn you to this space initially when you started getting involved with chain analysis. But prior to filming, another conversation that we had was about how there are some caveats to this great opportunity. And so, yeah, maybe you can fill us in on that a bit more, both the big opportunity of these big public blockchains that can be analyzed, as well as something that makes it uh, tricky, <laughs> some bits that make it tricky. Well, there's always a caveat. It's the expression, the, the large print giveth and the small print taketh. But um, <laughs> with, with cryptocurrency and with blockchains in particular, the obvious use cases and opportunities that this data set represents are anyone can have access to the real-time data, not just the real-time data, but also what's in what's called the mempool. So transactions not yet to be settled. Anyone can get access to a node and, and publicly analyze this data. It's extremely powerful for, uh, for, for researchers. There's, there's a lot of economic activity. Can you think of another real-time economic data set that anyone can have access to? I used to work for the government and I would use year-old survey data to explain economic trends. We would all get so excited. Oh, a new survey is coming out. It's from, but it's already a year old. And so the, the opportunities are huge. Now, the reason why I said that there are caveats is because this is a messy data set and it is full of noise. And sometimes you have trouble separating the signal from the noise. And I think that's probably true in any big data um, set. But I'll give you, I think, maybe one or two examples of why that of what that means in, in blockchain data. One example is that sometimes there might be a thousand transactions between different distinct wallets, but they're all actually a part of just one payment chain from one service to another. And just the technical quirk that has worked out is that they will be carrying out one transfer over across a thousand different wallets. So if you just parse the blockchain, that's going to look like a thousand different wallets, but that's not you know, a thousand units of economic value. But for me, increasingly, one thing that that I'm struggling with with the blockchain data is that a lot of I'm interested in economic questions. So what is driving people's behaviors? Why is blockchain activity going up? Why is it going down? What is the significance of this data? How do we interpret it? But there's also this a lot of transfers are just administrative transfers between exchanges that mm -hmm. are things that are 
happening on their books that we're not privy to that information. So there might be a $700 million transfer into an exchange. Uh, It might just be them topping up their reserves and it's not actually Mm -hmm. economically meaningful or them moving their their money around. So that being said, this is still kind of early stages in this data. So Mm -hmm. again, the challenges present opportunities and there are these, there's this concept where in a, in a bear market, you know, you put your head down and you build. And I'm seeing a lot of people, a lot of different startups and companies excited by these problems, wanting to be the one to solve for these issues. So where is the signal? Where is the noise? And that's certainly one thing that Chainalysis does as a company is we identify services and we really try and reduce the amount of noise in the blockchain. But you know, when you're when you live in any single data set, some days are better than others when it comes to appreciating the value of your data. Right, 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 right. Today's show is brought to you by Datalore, the collaborative data science platform by JetBrains. Datalore brings together three big pieces of functionality. First, it offers data science with a first-class Jupyter Notebook coding experience in all the key data science languages: Python, SQL, R, and Scala. Second, Datalore provides modern business intelligence with interactive data apps and easy ways to share your BI insights with stakeholders. And third, Datalore facilitates team productivity with live collaboration on notebooks and powerful no-code automations. To boot, with Datalore, you can do all this online, in your private cloud, or even on-prem. Register at datalore.online SDS and use the code SUPERDS for a free month of Datalore Pro and the code SUPERDS5 for a 5% discount on the Datalore Enterprise Plan. Yeah, those all make sense. So huge opportunity here. There's no real-time economic data set like it in the world. And that's a huge difference from economic data sets that people have had to work with historically, like you're mentioning, these year-old surveys being common. Um, And uh, so despite those big opportunities, of course, like any big opportunity, there are um, the the slightly less attractive bits. <laughs> uh, like in this case, sometimes there being very big transactions, which can uh, could appear to be a signal, and, and it's difficult to distill whether that is a signal or whether it's just some administrative move, maybe even between two wallets that one organization has. Um, got it. That makes perfect sense. Um, so. As director of research, you are responsible for lots of reports, as we've already talked about. We're going to get into a bunch of those. Um, One of those reports is about illegal activities. And so I want to dig into that a little bit. Two years ago, Chainalysis estimated that 1% of blockchain transactions were linked to illegal activities. And 1% is a big number (laughs) because of the absolute number of transactions that happen. So 1% might not sound like a lot, but when the number of transactions is so enormous, it, it really is a lot. So uh, two years ago, estimated that 1% of blockchain transactions were linked to illegal activities. So things like ransomware and NFT non-fungible token wash trading. So what are those things? Uh, what's NFT wash trading? What's ransomware? How are these things facilitated by blockchain transactions? Um, why are they a problem? So it's funny that you say 1% is small, I mean, is large, because a lot of people say that's so small, but I'm like, what is the right number, you know, that that you would say, (laughs) hey, that feels right. Um, And so, 
Yeah, that's about $14 billion last year in illicit activity across 10 different or sorry, 10 or 11, I I can't quite remember, different types of illicit activity. Let's see if I can name them off. You did NFT washing ransomware, but we also have scams, stolen funds, sanctioned activity, terrorist financing, child abuse materials, um, hacking, um, and uh, malware. So there's, there's many different types of illicit activity that happen on the blockchain. It is super impressive that you just reeled those off. For people who aren't watching the video version of this, which is most of you listeners, Kim did that on her fingers. Uh, she wasn't looking at notes. <laughs> she was just counting on her fingers up to 10 or 11. Darknet marketplaces, fraud shops. <laughs> there are two there more. Uh-huh. Um, I think those are all of them. Yeah, no. So they are. there's a lot of different variety in crime. So when people say how much crime is happening, it's mm. you want to give one number, but each of those components of crime are really different. So obviously, terrorist financing is really different from an NFT wash trade. And so just some definitions. NFT wash trading is... Uh, or wash trading in general is when you create a fake sense, you create fake volumes around an asset being traded. So if I launch an NFT, no one's going to buy my dumb NFT. Uh, who, you know, they're not going to want to buy it if there's no, unless they love the art that I make. There's not going to, unless there's a promise of return. So if I, but if I buy and sell my own NFT on a platform hundreds of times, then a bot. There's a lot of bots that are lurking in the crypto space because anyone can build one and uh, might pick up on that and then buy one of my NFTs. So we're, we're able to quantify that, which is actually a pretty a pretty new thing that we're working on. And, and I think that it's a, a domain that I'd like to linger on a little bit from a data science perspective. But mm-hmm. the other types of crime are ransomware. That's when someone downloads when you when you accidentally download a malware and your computer gets locked unless you pay a a ransom which is almost always and definitely always in cryptocurrency and uh, hacking is obviously a big cryptocurrency exchange was hacked darknet marketplace buying drugs online fraud shops Mm -hmm. buying stolen credit cards online scams are people saying hey you want to make a a hundred percent returns every day for life (laughs) And then it's uh, not the case. So there's a lot of variety and all of those are driven and impacted by different factors. Interesting. And Chainalysis works with law enforcement organizations to help them trace some of these transactions into the real world. So even though the blockchain has some anonymity, so this came up in Philip's episode a bit, that even though a wallet on its own is anonymous, that wallet might do transactions with a known entity. So like an exchange and and some entities have legal requirements to keep information on the counterparties that they do inter transactions with. So uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this or if I'm saying anything incorrectly, but it sounds like Chainalysis can work with law enforcement agencies to help them trace you know, the root of some transaction, and then the FBI or whoever in the real world can then, you know, follow up with exchanges, counterparties, and get to the bottom of who actually is 
ultimately responsible for this crime that's happened. Yeah, I'd say that's that's right. So it kind of manifests in two distinct ways in in our customers. One is if you come across a crime scene and there's a cryptocurrency wallet and you want to get to the bottom of it, you'll use our software to find to basically follow the money. Where did that where did those funds come from? And then maybe the exchange that sourced the funds will have some sort of personally identifiable information on that individual, which can lead to, so you got the investigation side of thing, things, and then you have the compliance side of things. So if you're an exchange, you're regulated by the Banking Secrecy Act, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you're, you're, you're not allowed to receive terrorist financing sanctioned funds. It's just a non-starter. You can't, you can't do that. But how do you know if the cryptocurrency from the string of alphanumeric letters and numbers is 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 a sanctioned address or not well you put it in our software we'll say we'll tell you where those funds came from and then you can kind of build an automatic transaction monitoring system so anything that has traces of any of those illicit activities you can then get an alert freeze those accounts offboard them not allow them to to get processed and and allow your company to remain compliant cool that was a really eloquent uh, explanation of how that works. Much better than mine. Uh, I'm glad to have you run through that. Well, you were talking um, about, and we talk about Wallace as entities too. So, yeah. <laughs> I talk about everything as entities. What isn't an entity? <laughs> That's um, a really good point. Everything <laughs> is an entity. <laughs> it's, a, it's a word I used uh, to sound smarter than if I just say thing. <laughs> well, we use entity in, in our... It actually in our internal dialogue. So we have internal and external dialogue. So things like mm. clusters or entities or um, TXIDs. And so we have all of these concepts that you have to really learn, like that's an internal concept that you, you know, and that's an ex- versus an external oh, right. concept. So I'm just yeah. impressed I haven't used the word cluster. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> um, what is it? Can you spill the beans on that? Sure. A cluster is a what we call a, basically a, a, a cluster of addresses. So mm. what we do at Chainalysis is we associate addresses together. And we do that through five, six different heuristics. Some of them are manual. Some of them are automatic. That's when you're getting into the more data science world. There's some, I'll give you an example. There's a concept called co-spending, where if um, two addresses spend the same transaction output together in the same transaction, you can know that they're connected to that those are two addresses must be controlled by the same individual. So they will associate those together and put them in one cluster. And a cluster is a series of wallets. Wallets can have up to, clusters can have millions, 10 million addresses in every single one. And so um, we, that's, that's at the heart of what Chainalysis is doing is so if you like we talked about at the top of the call, anyone can plug into this data set, but you won't know which addresses are associated with each other without running a whole bunch of heuristics over the entire history of the data set, which is something that is just kind of prevents a lot of people from being able to draw the conclusions that we're able to draw. Yeah, because they have to come up with the heuristics, uh, which requires some expertise. And then even once they've come up with the heuristics running over on a big blockchain, like the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, the blockchain, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, would be an enormous computational expense to go over all the history and identify where 
co-spending is occurring, for example. Um, so yeah, much cheaper yes. to work with a tool like Chainalysis provides to be able to quickly get the results <laughs> of yeah. all of your uh, intellectual property and computational work. It would be computationally expensive, but also there's there's other heuristics that we employ to get attribution, what we call attribution. I think that's another internal word um, where we identify what the name of the service is. So who controls those 10 million addresses? So it's it's a hard, hard one data set that is really, um, you know, seven years and eight years in the making now. So, and every, every day it, it grows tremendously. Nice. What do you think about the Super Data Science Podcast? Every episode, I strive to create the best possible experience for you, and I'd love to hear how I'm doing at that. For a limited time, we have a survey up at superdatascience.com survey, where you can provide me with your invaluable feedback on what you enjoy most about the show and critically about what we could be doing differently, what I could be improving for you. The survey will only take a few minutes of your time, but it could have a big impact on how I shape the show for you for years to come. So now's your chance. The survey is available at superdatascience.com slash survey. That's superdatascience.com slash survey. So uh, those are great examples. The co-spending, for example, and even just talking about attribution in general, those are great examples of how we can be using uh, data modeling techniques to be drawing inferences about a blockchain data set. Do you happen to have any other kind of interesting use cases, maybe even related specifically to the legal transactions that we were just talking about is like yeah how can we how can we be using data science or machine learning to be identifying illegal activities it's a really it's a really good question and i think this is where the domain of machine learning and data science in blockchain is particularly exciting one example might be that you, there might be tells on what a certain type of illicit address or type of illicit category looks like. And I guess a, a better example is, so we talked about ransomware. There are many, many different ransomware bad actors. And what they do is they create a strain of ransomware. And I'll give you an example of one. One might be, one is called Conti. That is the biggest, one of the biggest ransomware strains right now. Another one that you might have heard of is called Darkside, and that is the uh, ransomware strain that uh, that was behind the Colonial Pipeline attack in 2021, mm-hmm. and that kind of got the Biden administration all paying attention to ransomware and saying, "Hey, ransomware is on par with terror with terrorism." Mm-hmm. And but these different ransomware gangs, they treat their they hold their cryptocurrency and they manage it in specific ways. So maybe they. Uh, will manage their transactions after they receive a ransom in a very specific way. So this does present an opportunity to scan the blockchain for based on behaviors, based on properties, based, based on all of this data that has more information than you might realize. So the time of day of the transaction is something that we use sometimes, the frequency of the transaction. Um where And all of these things that you can create kind of a list of properties and then say, hey, what else fits this criteria? Now, that is great for research. Wouldn't fit the bar of gaining attribution at Chainalysis, but it, because we need to be 100% on our attributions because they're used in real life investigations that kind of sometimes 
might put someone in jail. So, but it still is really an interesting domain to, to, if you have like a training, a test and training data set, you can see how, how, how close you can get to Mm -hmm. identifying ransomware. Uh, and mm-hmm. then once you kind of perfect that, the cool thing about that is you can apply it across everything, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've, so, and the last thing I'll say on this is one of the cooler things that we did in the crime report was, that was kind of more data science-y, was um, we looked at all of the deposit addresses on exchanges that were receiving illicit funds in a given year. And I think this speaks to the power of the blockchain that, you know, Philip and Sadie were talking to in the, in the past, and which is that I could write a query and immediately find all of the off ramps that are, so, that are responsible for moving those funds. And I think that's extremely powerful if you're interested mm-hmm. in, in crime prevention, mm-hmm. proactive, being more proactive with data law enforcement it's really interesting to see law enforcement like who you might you might not have as like in your mind as being you know the ones at the crime scene as being very like into the mechanics of data but they're really leaning into these kind of more proactive um techniques Mm -hmm. cool um that was a great explanation so we can use machine learning say on a training data set where we have labels of some particular kind of illicit activity that we're aware of, say ransomware. We have this label data set of positive cases, negative cases, and then machine learning is adept at pattern recognition. And so it can recognize the patterns associated with uh, particular behaviors, particular activities on the blockchain that are related to, say, ransomware. And then we can deploy that model once it's trained um, across all of the blockchain. Or blockchains, and uh, identify uh, criminal activity um, or flag potential criminal activity across it. Super cool. Um, so, in addition to the uh, crime report uh, that Chainalysis produces, um, you also produce a global crypto adoption report. And in that report, um, you've identified that emerging markets such as Vietnam, India, and Ukraine are uh, topping this list. And so those specific countries, Vietnam, India, and Ukraine, have topped the, the Chainalysis global crypto adoption list for two years in a row. Um, so you've called this grassroots adoption. What makes one country more willing to embrace blockchain and cryptocurrencies than others? Um, yeah, I guess that's the end of my question. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the it's the what I think is probably one of the more underreported stories in crypto. A lot of media talks about um, Celsius bankruptcies, which is obviously an important an important thing, but you don't hear a lot about crypto adoption around the world. And so that's what motivates this this report because we know that we know that you can't kind of like different crime categories are all different. Every country is different and has different reasons for using cryptocurrency. And you really see that when you start to tease out our data. And I honestly, I do a lot of interviewing for this report because one of the limitations to blockchain data is, hey, I see a Coinbase to 
Gemini transfer. I can't go, excuse me, what was the intention of this transfer? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I, and then I, ideally I could. And then they would say, oh, this is a remittance payment or this is me, you know, um, sending money overseas or sending money, buying a Tesla. I don't know. And so we can't, we can't see, we can't ask the intention behind these transactions. But um, the geography index report was was really interested in that question. And so we built a way to measure adoption by country. We weighted everything for purchasing power and population. Mm. And we saw that these emerging markets were at the top of the, in, of the index. And it's really for different reasons. So the Philippines, for example, really stood out as having a huge play-to-earn population. And mm-hmm. people are interested in DeFi and gaming. And there's a lot of web traffic activity in the Philippines from these from these sites. But then in India... Yeah, so people, people in the yeah. Philippines will like, they'll play games for small amounts of cryptocurrency. Well, what would be in, in the US, say, you know, not worth your time. But in the Philippines, spending an hour playing these video games where you get a uh, cryptocurrency reward is worth it because uh, of purchasing power uh, differences. Uh, that's that's kind of what happens there, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. I, that's probably why it's so popular in um, Philippines. And yeah, so gaming really pops out in the Philippines for those reasons, and in other regions in in Central and Southern Asia as well. Gaming is gaming, especially play to earn, are popular in those countries. But um, in India, yeah. we saw yeah. a ton of NFT activity, which I thought was interesting as well. Apparently, mm. there was a new cricket game that was <laughs> launched in India a few months ago, or six months ago, or something that just really mm-hmm. became popular. And that, yeah, and that's related to NFT somehow. The game, this cricket game. Yeah, exactly. Trading cards, um, trading NFTs in India. And um, so there's different reasons for adoption in emerging markets. And one thing that I do think is is driving a lot of the activity is um, people want to responsibly invest their money, uh, no matter where you are. If you have disposable income, you want to put it in a way that in a place where you think it's going to grow. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you you and I we can buy stocks and we can put our money in equities and but a lot of people around the world don't have that same level of access. There's reasons mm-hmm. why they are blocked out of the financial ecosystem for mm-hmm. regulations that prevent them from gaining proper licenses for doing cross-border payments or anything. So cryptocurrency is available to anyone. And I think that I think that, that drive to invest, people call it and characterize it as as, you know, gambling and, you know, and which it is to some degree. But I think that what it is even more than that is just is just a a, a willing a need, a want and a desire to to grow your wealth. And we see that a lot around the world. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So a big driver behind grassroots adoption. Um, so notwithstanding the specific examples you made around uh, pay-to-play gaming or uh, NFTs related to cricket, um, there's a general trend in emerging markets toward adoption because 
it provides people with um, with a way to earn uh, passively on their income that otherwise they might not have any access to. Um, is it also the case that it might also provide them with an opportunity to just exchange that otherwise they wouldn't be able to? Um, like uh, there might not be other mechanisms uh, for for transferring funds between people uh, in some countries like we have in the West. And so uh, crypto facilitates that as well. We definitely have seen some of that. And it's it's uh, we've we talked to people, for example, in in Nigeria who just do business. They have a local shop and they do business. They use cryptocurrency. It just makes more sense to them. It allows them to have international customers and it's just easier it's in some ways, once you kind of get over the hump of figuring out how to download it. And, um, and I think that, it, I think there's some growing places where it just kind of makes more sense, but then you'll also have places like in Argentina or Latin America. I found this more broadly where people don't care about cryptocurrency. They're not, they're not, they don't, they don't, they literally couldn't care less about who Satoshi Nakamoto is. They're just in the, presence of hyperinflation and they are just how do i get exposure to the dollar but i can't get the dollar because in argentina the most dollars you can hold in a single month is 200 dollars. that's regulations so let's use stable coins and so you see people saying hey i actually could get exposure to the dollar in this other way right and so stable coins are pegged to a major currency like the u.s dollar that's what distinguishes them from the bitcoins are free uh, the, the pricing on them is free to move, but some, but some stable coins, they're supposed to be pegged and they often are. <laughs> yeah. Often a lot of the times they're pegged. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so yeah, that that's right. They are, they are pegged to a stable secure, um, they're a stable source of value. So the major st- stable coin is tether and that's pegged to the U S dollar, but we are joking around because there was a recent, Example, something called UST, which is different from USDT, which was supposed to be pegged to the dollar as well, but yeah, it was yeah. through this process called, al- it was an algorithmic stable coin and it lost the peg and crashed to basically nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember reading about that recently, which was actually what prompted me to say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. often mm-hmm. uh, pegged. Um, but yeah, so it sounds like some stable coins like Tether, um, they're they're more trusted because they they tend to actually have the U.S. dollar assets to back um, that peg. Whereas, um, I guess, as is common in any market that expands really rapidly, you end up, especially when uh, in in the bull times when the market is growing, you end up with um, with people devising these kinds of algorithmic pegs, uh, these kinds of scams. Uh, maybe some of them actually thought the algorithm would work at all times. Uh, maybe some others had a hunch that it would only work in a bull market, kind of more like a, like a Ponzi scheme. Um, but then, so the the bear market that we've experienced in crypto in 2022 and a lot of markets um, has exposed some of those uh, scams. Um, so related to the, to the grassroots adoption question, so we talked about some of the cases like Philippines, India, um, where adoption is really high, um, and it's thanks to grassroots adoption. But there are other instances where we've seen uh, 
kind of the opposite happened. So in El Salvador, for example, uh, the president there, he pushed Bitcoin as legal tender. Uh, so I, my understanding is it was the first country in the world to have Bitcoin be legal tender. And that hasn't gone over extremely well. So people have taken to the streets to destroy Bitcoin ATMs, for example. So is there any kind of one thing or any short list of things that went wrong there? Um, you know, what, what, what should countries be doing to approach making uh, crypto uh, legal and be well adopted? I think it's your. T it shows your your very typical kind of like question around top down versus bottom up, and I think right. probably bottom up tends right. to be slightly more sustainable growth, right. and bottom down, you know, you have to win the hearts of minds and people, and you know, you you kind of tend to it's more effective to do that slow slowly. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that the, the experiment with El Salvador has really played out yet, although yeah. I think the reaction to it is definitely a result resulting from this bottom down approach. And, you know, if you're someone who doesn't like cryptocurrency or thinks it's unstable, then knowing that so much of your country's assets is suddenly overnight sitting in cryptocurrency, you know, maybe you think that's too risky. And but. You know, we'll we'll see. I, I've heard other countries are are following this, or might be following this this example, and so we'll see how it plays out. But I think I think that a lot of the backlash really is really is because of the different approach, dif the different approach used there. Nice, that makes perfect sense. Um, so we've just talked about the Chainalysis Global Crypto Adoption Report. Prior to that, we were talking about um, reporting on illegal activities. What other reports <laughs> are you responsible for, Kim, that our audience might be interested in hearing about? Right now, I'm working on something in DeFi. I really want to figure out questions around um, market integrity and how we can use all of this public data to better kind of audit the industry. So how can we, I, I think a lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry think that the cryptocurrency volumes are faked or there's a few bad actors that are doing a lot of the transaction activity or there are whales that are pumping and dumping the market. So can we use our amazing, the data at our, at our disposal to you build tools that can, that can help with market integrity? Can we build an industry-wide market manipulation metric, a front-running metric? Can we identify better where the bots are, where pe when people are front-running? And I think there's a lot, a lot of building to happen there. And so that's where my head is at right now. And I'm trying to get some of that for our upcoming crime report. But we also do um, a ton of other research. So competitive landscape, who are the winners and losers in the cryptocurrency space, what's happening in the NFT markets, um, you know, and then some kind of just random research. My first viral piece of research that I did at Chainalysis was around the lost Bitcoins. So people, so things, things like that as well pop up. Cool. Sounds really fun. Um, what kinds of analytical or data science tools do you use day to day 
to analyze the data that you have at your disposal and create these reports? So I do everything and we use Python and Jupyter Notebooks and we plug into our data directly, which is part, you know, the blockchain getting parsed and then our engineering team will kind of clean it up again. And then we use, we, we access the databases using SQL and do all of the, um, do all of the transformations and chart building and, and report generation in Python. And um, I do a little bit of exporting to Gephi for some network analysis when necessary. And yeah, I think that's the, I think that's pretty much the main, probably 90% of my time is in there. Yeah. So a lot of that uh, is, is probably unsurprising to our listeners. So SQL for extracting information from databases, um, once it's (laughs) been processed by your data engineering team and put into those kind of structured databases, Um, Python for your uh, data analysis done in Jupyter Notebooks, um, and even some of your um, some of your report creation, uh, maybe the charts and things like that happens in Python. But there was one tool that you mentioned there at the end that I hadn't heard of before, Gephi. Uh, Gephi. Gephi's great. Gephi, you G-E-P-H-Y? just... Uh, yeah. P-H-Y? G- yeah, G- G-E-P-H-I. Ah, right. Nice. We'll be sure to have that in the show notes. So that's fun for working with graph data. Yeah, exactly. You just export... Uh, data sets that are in kind of a network structure and you can upload it into Gephi and then it runs all of these network network statistics on your on your data that you've imported super user friendly I really encourage people to explore it it's um it's really cool and um and free nice ideal is there other than Gephi um are there any other data science tools or techniques that you're really excited about that you think our listeners should know about I don't know if this, this is not a data science technique, but um, since I'm not, I'm not sure about those, what I would recommend there beyond kind of the, the basics, I would say one domain I'm really excited about is more advanced parsing of Ethereum and smart contract data. What's part, uh, so every single smart, every single transaction on like the Ethereum blockchain has a set, has this component called the logs. and the logs are kind of a, a uncharted territory. I think they're really interesting, and there's a lot of good data there. So I would kind of point tools in in that don't in that area, and it's a it's a parsing of that in um, is is something that I I am using. I'm really focusing on now. Nice, really cool. Um, so that's a good example. So this advanced parsing of Ethereum smart contract logs. That's a great example of how data science techniques and blockchain cryptocurrency are evolving together. Where do you think that might go in the coming years? Or if you dare to take an even bigger risk in the coming decades? So it's a really, it's a really good question. And if I had to venture a guess as to, as to where, where we're heading, I think that it's very clear that we're entering that there's a lot of people building in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And so I think a lot of things that we do now might transfer onto blockchain technologies where you might not notice that they're there, but they're making things slightly more efficient. And I think that things like 
that involve being digitally native will just slowly become more and more intuitive in our lives and a part of our lives and transferring money to people around the world and using cryptocurrencies potentially, but it could also CBDCs, so central bank digital currencies could also play a role here, will become a little bit easier over time and it will just create a smoother transition to a more digital native world um, that uh, I, I know that's not like a great, you know, futuristic answer, but I, I, I see the, the progress as being slow and hard one and just kind of gradually seeping into our lives until suddenly we're extremely competent and dig- digitally native. I love that answer. That is, that is a great one. So uh, yeah, just this general idea of smoothing our transition into a digitally native world. Um, today, we are still, <laughs> there's so much that is purely analog um, that could be digital and things like the blockchain z- <laughs> <laughs> provide us with the opportunity uh, to be tracking these things digitally and then data science, machine learning provides us with tools for analyzing those data um, for informational purposes, for avoiding crime. Um, so great. Uh, that's, that's a really great answer. So um, your background is interesting. I mean, there isn't, there aren't people, maybe there are very young people today who can kind of grow up and do cryptocurrency degrees. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, but uh, you studied uh, political science, including doing a political theory master's at Oxford, doing a uh, master's in public administration at the London School of Economics. And so how did that formal education background prepare you for what you're doing today? And then what was the value in doing a data science bootcamp with General Assembly? Um, how did that tie in? to the kind of uh, the more traditional formal education that you had beforehand? Yeah, my background is certainly random. <laughs> it's it's all over the place a little bit. I, I think that philosophy and political theory have a clear way in structuring your thinking and structuring the way you carry out research and how you, how you write about that research, how you formulate hypotheses. And I think kind of being educated in more of the soft sciences made me appreciate the power of that. And um, so I learned a lot of that from those degrees. And then honestly, a lot of my data skills and have come from the General Assembly Bootcamp, where I kind of just was working for this this, I was working in government before my job and they allowed us to, you know, use a stipend for for any education. And I saw that there was this General Assembly boot camp, and I just kind of was not qualified at all to take it. I mean, I did Stata <laughs> in my in my um, in my graduate degree, and I used Stata, and you know, had run regressions and was familiar with statistics and whatnot, but definitely mm-hmm. was not familiar with basic programming. And I and they said that they said don't sign up for this if you're if you don't have these basic <laughs> things and I was like I don't need it so I did it and it was way over my head and I wish I had listened <laughs> to them and I wish I could you know <laughs> but but to be honest it really created a uh, it 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 lit, lit the spark of me wanting to do that and and so then I joined Chainalysis and I had the basics 
under my belt. And I, and because chain analysis was growing so much, I kind of just like learned on the job and was really committed to learning and growing the data skills that I had to the point that they are today. And I really encourage people who are think that, hey, I kind of want to do data science, but I'm not qualified. And I, I, it's not as hard. You just have to kind of put in the work and it's not as hard as, as you think. And I really encourage people to kind of consider these certificate courses because they can be so powerful and in, in, a, in a friendly way that's not like a huge, crazy master's degree that's going to put you in tremendous debt for life. You can, you can get exposure to, to a, new, a new field. So I highly recommend these certificates, especially if you're kind of have that, I'm kind of curious about this thing and I'd really like to um, try it, but no, I'm no good at it. It's too late. Like it's not too late, especially for blockchain. It's, it's you know, I, I did, I did the certificate like several years after I was like, I'm never going, going to be educated ever again. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great resource. And I love these certificate programs that are growing, that are, that are popping up and just all the self-education Coursera's that people have access to. Yeah. Uh, we think they're great as well. Our sister company, so there's a thing called superdatascience.com that we don't talk about on air very often, but it is that exactly that kind of thing, kind of like a Coursera for learning data science, machine learning skills. Um, and so, yes, we are very much behind that as something as, you know, these kinds of data science boot camps like General Assembly, and that's a very well-regarded one at General, General Assembly. They allow you to, yeah, get exposure, as you say, in a friendly way, uh, an unintimidating way um, to the breadth of data science. And then once you kind of know what's possible, like you did, so even if some of it was a bit over your head as you were actually pursuing the program, it provides you with a map of understanding what all is possible. And then you can fill in those details uh, on the job like you have. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. There's, I think there's, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there and it's, it's very low risk in terms of your time as well as your money relative to pursuing say a master's in data science like you like you mentioned um, so yeah definitely something for our listeners to consider if you're thinking of getting into data science as Kim says you can do it try it out do a boot camp see how it goes do some online courses see how it goes um, uh, you can definitely do it all right Kim it's been a brilliant episode I've learned a lot I'm sure our audience has loved this episode as well. And our uh, regular listeners will know that at the end of an episode, I ask you for a book recommendation. Oh, yes. Okay. So I just read Bewilderment by Richard Powers, and I semi-recommend that, but I really recommend his first book, The Overstory. It's about, mm. it's, it's a really good book, weirdly about trees, and just a beautiful book, and I highly recommend it. Nice. That's a great recommendation. And so then if people want to be able to stay in touch with you after this episode, I'd love to hear um, yeah, what social media you'd recommend that they follow you on. But I'd also like to give a plug here for Chainalysis. So you're doing hiring for data engineering roles and machine learning engineering roles. So another way that people could stay in touch with you if they feel like what you're doing at Chainalysis is really cool they could literally work beside you <laughs> and be creating the algorithms that mine the enormous blockchain and provide 
data into SQL tables that then you can uh, query more easily. So the data engineers would be doing that. And then the machine learning engineers, I imagine, would be training the machine learning models like the ones you described in this episode for identifying patterns of blockchain activity that are, say, associated with criminal activity like ransomware, and then applying those machine learning algorithms over the multi-chain. <laughs> oh, that's what uh, we should use. So yeah, I don't know if I plugged those accurately or sufficiently. I really don't. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a bunch of guesses here, but those sound like what data engineers and machine learning engineers would be doing um, at Chainalysis. So I don't know if you have anything else to say about that, but yeah, definitely tell us um, either way how listeners can be uh, following you after this episode. Definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I've been told to start doing more Twitter. So um, I'm definitely more available. More, yeah, I'm definitely trying to be more available on that. And also, I love meeting new people. So just genuinely reach out to me on LinkedIn. Say you saw listened on the Super Science podcast. If you want to chat about careers, feel free to message me or browse our website. And yeah, let's let's work together. Nice. Sounds great. I like the idea of being the Super Science podcast, not just the Super Data Science podcast. Maybe we should we should move in that direction. I think it's you heard it here first from King Grower. <laughs> <laughs> That's the direction we're going in. Um, I love, uh, yeah, I love science in general. That'd be a great way to go. Um, all right, Kim, thank you so much. It's been so much fun having you on air. And as I already said, I learned a ton. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really great. I was deeply impressed by Kim's depth of knowledge on every topic we touched on today, and I had a blast working with her on today's episode. In it, Kim filled us in on how blockchains provide unprecedented access to real-time economic data, but how massive, economically meaningless transactions that occur regularly can add a lot of noise to the data. She talked about how data science through tracing co-spending facilitates the identification of clusters, while attribution enables the identification of crypto wallet owners. She talked about how machine learning can predict patterns of blockchain activity related to criminal activity. She talked about how SQL, Python, Jupyter Notebooks, and the OpenGraph visualization platform Gephi are tools that she uses daily. And she talked about how the blockchain, crypto, and data science are evolving together to facilitate a digital native world. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Kim's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 625. That's superdatascience.com slash 625. Well, so every episode, I strive to create the best possible experience for you, and I'd love to hear how I'm doing at that. For a limited time, we have a survey up at superdatascience.com slash survey where you can provide me with your invaluable feedback on what you enjoy most about the show and critically about what we could be doing differently, what I could be improving for you. Again, the quick survey is available at superdatascience.com survey. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science podcast episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another fascinating episode for us today. For enabling this super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. Please consider supporting the show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can find our contact details in the show notes as well, or make your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. 
Last but not least, thanks to you for listening all the way to the end of the show. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.